Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. Chapter 6, like I said, we're going to go through scriptures that Calvinists typically take out of context and then read the text for what it says and understand it from a biblical perspective rather than a Calvinistic. On page 1, this is John chapter 6 and this is verse 27 and it says, Do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. So right off the bat, right there in that that first passage in John chapter 6, what does the Son want to do? He wants to give something away. The Calvinist will interpret this as the Father wants to hold things back. Okay? I know we're not talking about the Father yet, but the Father will be in the passage later on. So this is the first outset. When you get into John 6, you have to understand what is being offered or wanting to be given away versus the Calvinistic interpretation of what is being withheld. And that right there starts you off on the right road or the wrong road. So basically the idea of the uh, uh, I'll give you food that gives you everlasting life, obviously Jesus is using a metaphor because you take in food, you receive food, you metabolize it, and it becomes part of you. So that's he's using food as a metaphor for receiving eternal life, which he wants to give to people. Okay. If you continue on, it says this, because God the Father has set his seal on him, referring to the Messiah, having the seal of God on him in order to do this, okay? Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Now, the reason they're asking that question is because as good rabbinical students, and and he's talking about religious leaders, they believe salvation not only is because of their Jewish heritage, but also because they keep the law. That keeping the law gains for them everlasting life. So they're wanting to ask the Messiah, what are the works that we need to do to solidify our eternal life? Okay. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. So he's taking them out on their logic, but then he's going to twist it on them and says this, that you believe in him who he sent. So what he did is, it's kind of, I wouldn't say sarcasm, but to say, okay, you believe in the work. I'll tell you what the one work is. It's belief. Well, when he says belief, then he's, he's putting it in the category of it's not a work. If that makes sense, he's taking what they're saying, work, and then turning it and saying it's belief, and belief is not a work. You have the whole thing misunderstood. It's always by faith. And so, obviously, you understand that. Okay, that being the case... They continue on. Verse 30. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? So they're wanting a miracle, some type of sign, okay? And this is, they continue on and says, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven. Now, why did he have to say that? Because they had idolized Moses in many ways. And he has to correct them. Moses didn't give you the bread. Who did? But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Okay, so the idea is they are so tied to the Mosaic law and revere Moses so much that the Mosaic law has become their idol because they think by keeping it, it gives them eternal life. But he's trying to show them, no, it's me and my father that gives eternal life. He says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So again, metaphor, he's saying he's the bread from God. He's the manna. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. They still don't understand. Okay, they think it's like real bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, the idea of hungering and thirsting has to do with satisfaction in eternal life. Basically, it's eternal life, okay? So it's a, it's a Jewish metaphor of being satisfied. You never hunger or thirst. You're satisfied because you have eternal life. He said that uh, similar thing to the woman at the well that you'll never thirst again type of thing. And so what they don't understand is that he, the Messiah, is actually the one who's going to be able to distribute eternal life. And how how does he distribute what he wants to give away? What does he say in the last phrase? He who what? Believes in me. Okay? So now we have a clue I know this is simple, but I want to keep walking through it because it's going to get complicated in just a bit. So the idea is that Messiah wants to give a gift. He wants to give something away. And now he's telling you, this is how you get what I want to give away. You have to believe in me. And then you will receive the gift that I want to give away. Okay, I know that's basic, but that's the context. If you don't understand that, then you will go off the path in a Calvinistic way and interpret it as something being held back from people. Okay? He following with me, okay, on this. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. So you see me, but you don't believe. Now, the idea of seeing is, again, a metaphor for believing. When Moses lifted up the uh, serpent on the pole, He told the Israelites, look, look at it. You couldn't look away because if you looked away, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be safe from the serpents biting you. You had to look at the serpent on the bronze cross that, that Moses had made. Okay. And so the idea he's using that language of you've seen me, but you, you see me as the serpent on the pole, so to speak. But you don't believe. You won't go one step further and believe that that will save you. You don't believe that I can save you is the idea. Let me ask you this. Why can't they believe in him? Or is something being withheld from them that prevents them from believing? Why can't they believe? Is it that they can't? Right. So they're asking for signs. Right. Miracles, signs, and wonders are asking for tangible things. Right? Instead of going the other side to what? Faith. 
Yes, it's the seven I am's in John, yeah. I am the bread of life. Uh-huh. And that's uh, John's seven I am's. So you get the seven I am's there, and that goes all the way back to Moses and God at the burning bush, or it was Messiah at the burning bush. And what did God say? I am, right? But in John, the the name of God is then added to in, in seven respects. I am what? Because God never answers that with Moses, does he? He just says, I am. But then when you get in the Gospels and the seven I am's, I am what? The bread. I am the door. I am the way. Right? So he, in the Gospel of John, it fills in what he didn't say to Moses. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's a good point that you pointed out. Okay, so with that being stated, we're, we're staying on track. We're staying on track. Everyone on the right track, right? Messiah wants to give something, but people are seeing him and they won't believe for what reason? Is it because they're not able to believe? Because he says, Yet you do not believe me. You've seen me, but you don't believe me. You've seen all the messianic miracles. You've seen what I do, what I say, but you still don't believe. It's probably pride. Yeah, absolutely. But what is the pride associated to? What is Judaism teaching them about salvation? That through the law and works, you can obtain salvation. Therefore, that's where the pride is of working for salvation, obtaining your own salvation, is where that pride is. They will not let it go that it's by faith in the Messiah and not anything they can do. And that's what prevents anybody from coming to faith in the Messiah. It is their own pride and they, because they won't believe that his works are what gain salvation and not their own. Right, and they won't even do that. So please understand... When someone's basing salvation on works, it doesn't matter what miracles they see because they can't make the step over because they won't let go of their pride. They just won't. It's not that they, it's not that they can't, and, and this is what I'm trying to get at. It's not an inability. It's a matter of their will. Okay. Total, in, and, and that means total inability, which means they can't do it. Are we, so you see where I was heading with this. So as we're interpreting this passage, and I know it's been simple so far, because right now you're going to another text and it's going to be like, okay, I don't know what to do with that one. So right now we're on the right track. Okay, so it's not because of a lack of ability, it's a lack of what? Will. They are not willing. Okay, at this point, this is where the departure starts happening. Calvinist says, because of total inability or total depravity, which is really should be translated total inability, they are saying they can't come to him. They, they lack the ability. They're a corpse that can't respond to him. That's why they're not coming over. It's not because they're, they're not willing. It's just they can't. Okay. Now we've got the air cleared, and this is where we approach it. Now we go into the text that, that throws people off. Verse 37, 
and that I highlighted all these controversial ones in yellow. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. And there's the tripwire. So let's deal with the second phrase before we deal with the first phrase. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So that's an easier one to deal with before we go into the other one. I will no means cast out. If you come to faith in me, basically he's promising eternal security. I, I will always keep you. I will never reject you. I will not cast you out. And there is the doctrine of eternal security, okay? Right there. That's simple, and it's all over the scriptures, that if you believe and you truly get saved, then you have eternal security. Now, eternal security means that you're saved, but it doesn't mean perseverance. Because you could not persevere. You could actually get into seasons of sin. You could die out of fellowship with the Lord, Ananias and Sapphira, the first Corinth church, that was messing around with the Lord's Supper. You can apostatize. You can get off the path in fellowship, right? So eternal security guarantees what? That you're going to have, that you're saved, you're going to be justified, you're going to be sanctified, and you're going to be glorified ultimately, and you're making it to heaven. But it doesn't guarantee that you will live a good Christian life. There are good Christians, and there are bad Christians. And I know that's a shock to you, but there are Christians, and let me define what bad Christians would mean. It means carnal Christians. It means immature Christians. Now, I'm not talking about baby Christians. Baby Christians are not bad, per se. They're just growing. But immature Christians that have been Christians a long time, that's a bad thing. That's a very bad thing. Worldly Christians are bad Christians. They're Laodicean. Laodicean Christians are worldly Christians, and they've rendered themselves useless that's why Jesus wants to spit them out of his mouth and vomit them out of his mouth. Because they are, in effect, acting bad. They are behaving badly. Okay? So please understand, eternal security does not guarantee that the Christian will persevere. We're admonished to persevere, but it's not a guarantee. Okay, let's go on. Now let's deal with the other phrase. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So wait a second, is Messiah saying this? You're not coming to me because the Father hasn't given you to me. Isn't that what he just said in the plain English right there? That's why you can't come to me, because the, the Father gives me people. The Father gives me the believer, and, the, and who the Father gives me will come to me. But they're not coming. Why are they not coming? Because he said in the earlier text, in 30, what, 36, yet you do not believe. So that's tied to the context. And so you must keep that in mind as you keep reading, because if you don't, that scripture will have a different meaning out of the context. Okay, so now we yeah, yeah, go ahead, Roy. To believe, right? That's why I started with that. In order to receive this gift, you have to believe. But then he, he throws this whole thing in there. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Okay. So here's what you have to do. If you're going through the Bible and you're reading something like this and all of a sudden you're flowing, you're flowing, you're flowing, I'm getting it, I'm getting it, and all of a sudden the scripture goes in there and like, I don't get that. The principle in hermeneutics is stay within the context, stay within the definitions of the context, and keep reading. 
Because when the scripture, when you get this little phrase like we're seeing now, and you're like, I don't get that. What the scriptures will do is explain it later on. Okay? You gotta keep reading. It's the principle of keep reading. Okay. Verse 38. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay, so he's saying, I'm on a mission to do this. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but shall raise it up at the last day. So again, he's, uh, this is a reference to e eternal security, that all that are given to him by the Father, he's not going to lose them, This is, and they're, they're destined for heaven, uh, and then the promise then is ultimate glorification when he says they're going to be raised up. It's a reference to resurrection, and resurrection is associated to adoption. Okay? So Paul will use the term adoption, that we await our final adoption. We're adopted when we get resurrected. Okay? That's when we become... Now you have the papers signed and all that stuff that you're, you're supposed to be adopted. And you have a down payment now with the Holy Spirit. But you, your adoption is not final. Your adoption comes when you're resurrected. That's why he mentions, and I will raise them up. It's, it's a, the final adoption, which is the glorification of the believer. Okay? So that's why Jesus is mentioning that. I'm going to carry it out all the way, is what he's saying. There's no partial salvation. I'm doing this all the way. Okay. Let's go to the next page. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees, there's that word see again, sees the Son of Man, so you got to see him, and believes in him, may have everlasting life, and then he attacks on the completion of salvation, and I will raise him up at the last day. Notice what he says, everyone who sees the Son and believes in him. Okay? Again, what Jesus, he's, he's said the, these things that the Father gives him, but then he comes back and reiterates what he's already said. You've got to see me and you've got to believe in me. Why is he doing this? Because they're not going to understand what he's saying, so he keeps reiterating the theme, believe in me, believe in me, believe in me. And if you, you believe in me, you have eternal life, okay? So he's reiterating the theme. He goes back to the hard saying. Verse 43, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Again, that's the third time he has mentioned eternal security. I'll raise him up in the last day. But, but here's the deal. He's now saying, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him who sent me. So here's the question then. What is this drawing of the Father? So the idea of the Father giving the Son believers has to do with the Father's draw of them to the Son. Is it the Holy Spirit? How does the Father draw? And is He saying, the reason you don't come to Me is because you're not drawn by the Father? Because he's saying no one can come to me unless he's drawn by the Father. You're not getting to Jesus unless you're drawn by the Father. And we have to figure that out. That is the crux of the matter. 
Maybe. Let me tell you what the Calvinists say. The Calvinists say that this is the mystical drawing of God to people who are elect to salvation. Even Arminians will call this prevenient grace, but God will draw them to the Messiah, and he only draws the elect. And that's why in their minds, when they interpret this passage, the Pharisees and religious leaders cannot come to Jesus because they're not being drawn. Is that what the passage is saying? No. It is if you just take that one passage out of context. Right? It'll say that. But you've got to bring in the whole thing. What Calvinists don't do is keep reading on. I'm telling you, it is the, one of the biggest principles in hermeneutics is just to keep reading. Because the author will eventually tell you. And guess what? In this passage, Jesus himself tells you what he means. Continue on. Verse 45. It is written in the prophets. This is Isaiah 54, 13. And they shall all be taught by God. Okay? So, the idea that he's referring to of no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and, and those the Father gives him, he will no wise cast out or lose them. What he means by that phrase is coming directly from Isaiah 54, 13. Hence, to understand that phraseology, you've got to understand Isaiah 54, 13. What does it mean that all will be taught by God? Okay? The actual quotes right there I put in your notes. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. So what is this? This is how the Lord, the Father, draws. This is the explanation of how the Father draws people to Jesus. It's predicted, and it's stated right there. How does the Lord draw people to His Son? All will be what? Taught. There's your phrase. Taught. So this is not some mystical drawing out like this. The way the Father draws people to the Son is He teaches them, according to Isaiah. Ah, He teaches them. True? All will be taught by God. All will be taught by God. So therefore, this is where you have to start breaking it out. Isaiah, who is Isaiah written to? Gentiles? No, Jews. So in the, in the phrase, all your children, what children? Who's your children? The Jews. So it's a direct reference to the nation of Israel, okay, in that passage. Okay, so you have to know that. So it's a direct reference to all your children shall be taught by the Lord. Now, the idea of that the nation of Israel will be taught by the Lord refers to special revelation. Special revelation. As you know, when Israel was founded as a nation, God spoke directly to them through Moses and established them as a nation. And God gave them the Mosaic Law and gave them His statutes and all the things that they had to practice. That all encompasses special revelation. 
that God actually speaks and gives them exactly what he is saying to them. So now let's unpack that. So the idea in Isaiah is that all will be taught by God is a direct reference to what special revelation? The Word. The Word of God. Now, the Word of God in special revelation can be given in many ways. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, how was special revelation given? Theophanies, miracles, direct communication, face-to-face. I put this all on your notes. Casting lots, uh, the Urim and Thummim, dreams, audible voices, visions, inner illumination, angels, the incarnation of the Messiah, the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and even a donkey, right, was given special revelation. Okay. That being the case, when all those things were given, they were codified in what is called the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament. In Jesus' day, they didn't have the New Testament. They had just the Old Testament. But it was obviously the Word of God, and that's what Isaiah is referring to. So, the concept of the Father drawing people to Jesus is done by special revelation, and that special revelation refers to the Word of God. Bingo! We have our answer. Now you tell me, how does God the Father draw people to Jesus? Through His Word. And just like Stephen said, it's very consistent. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word. Jesus has now explained what he means. Continue on. I'll explain general revelation in just a bit, okay? Hold on. Therefore, now Jesus is going to explain Isaiah 54, 13. We didn't have to go through that. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Bingo, we got our answer. Do you see how simple this is? And why do Calvinists want to make this so complicated? Basically, he just came out and said this. Hey, Israel, if you don't accept the word of God, you won't accept me. If you accept the word of God, you will accept me. The reason that you don't come to me is because you don't believe what the Father's revelation has said in the Old Testament. Because if you did, you would believe in me. So the ones that the Father has given me are the ones who believe what the Father has said in special revelation. And what did he say? I think someone said it. You search the Scriptures looking for salvation, but they speak of me. And if you would have accepted the Old Testament, you would have accepted the Messiah. It's that simple. And you would have been drawn to the Messiah because what does the Old Testament say about the Messiah? They would explain who he was, what miracles he would do, who he, who would, what line of, 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 of Israel he would be from, the line of David, the tribe of Judah, all that, and he had all the markers. But again, if you don't believe the scriptures, you're not going to believe in Jesus. Now let's take a step back. Please understand that Isaiah 54 is in the context of Israel. Israel does not need general revelation because they have special revelation. They're already, they've already moved past that stage, okay? So at this point, Israel is dealing with God on special revelation, okay? But let's unpack this 
for the person in Africa or the Amazon River that doesn't have the Word of God. Because it's telling you that you're only going to come to Jesus by the Word of God. What are the other things that God does to those who do not possess special revelation? How does He get them from general revelation to special revelation? What does the Scripture say? Someone said it. Number one is creation. The creation screams a creator. It's all over the place. I mean, you have Isaiah 40, Psalm 19, all that speak about that, that you can actually see the goodness of God in nature, in his creation. You actually, according to Romans 1, can learn about God's power and the Godhead through nature. You know, the funny thing about when you study nature, there's threes everywhere. There's a unity of threes everywhere. Weird. It's all in creation. Down to the microscopic level, there's threes everywhere. And there'll be one. Weird. But it speaks of the Godhead. Right? The other thing that, that scriptures will note is providence. So someone looks around in their life and understands their own personal history, understands just general history for that matter, and what they will see in their own personal life is, God, is their history with God and his interactions with them. And they can't deny it. They can suppress it, but they can't deny it. And that's another general witness to them. As far as a, a outward witness of history, the biggest history lesson, and this is the importance of what I'm about to tell you, is when they look to this one entity, it should tell them everything about history. There's one entity in the Old Testament, one vehicle that God used, that is actually telling history, the history of God. And do you know what that entity is? It's the Jews. The Jews are, yes, the chosen people of God, but their history's witness. And no one gets that one. Because if you look, it, Israel's history is God's history. So from the time he picked them out, it started him recording. Moses goes back and does Genesis. But from that point on to this very day, prophetically, God uses Israel as his witness of history. And here's the thing. Even though people try to rewrite history and tamper with it, they can't mess with the history of the Jews because it's in the Scriptures and God preserves His Word. So if anyone wants to say, I don't know this God, we say, look, there's His people right there. They're the oldest civilization on planet Earth and He plans to use them again. There they are. The modern-day Jew is an absolute miracle of history that they even exist. Right? That's right. They can't do it. They stand at the grave of every country that tries to do that. And so whether you're looking at the Holocaust, whether you go back to the programs, whether you go back to the Spanish Inquisitions, just all through it, they've been attacked, 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 attacked. Martin Luther, all these guys, the reformers, attacked them. If you continue to watch them, they are always preserved as a people. You never can erase them. And, and that's one of the most powerful witnesses in general revelation. The other thing is, is obviously preservation. And you'll see this 
Acts 17, Colossians 1. Now, what we understand from preservation, Colossians 1 will say that the creation is being held together by the Messiah. Okay? What we now know from science is that all this stuff is holding together and they don't know what holds it together. They can't explain it. They're like, there's no reason for this not to just come apart and go crazy. But for some reason, they, they, they don't know what it is that something's holding everything together from going chaotic. You know full well what explains that. It's Messiah holding the whole thing together as creator. He's holding you together, by the way. Because you would just come apart at the seams. Something's holding you together, your body together. And, and, and the universe together. And all this other stuff. Even though it's on a decay, it's actually being held. That's another general witness. Okay. The fourth one is conscience. Paul will mention this in, in Romans chapter 2. That God has revealed himself in his absolute moral law. Not the Mosaic law. Please make sure you understand that. That there's a moral law written on people's conscience or heart, which is another interwitness, which produces what? Guilt. Okay. That being stated, in order to get to the Messiah, you have to accept special revelation. So what you start seeing is a system that God has built that any person on this planet that's in, you know, the Amazon jungle, okay? If that person will respond to general revelation, creation, providence, history, he may not even know about the Jews, but at least he knows about creation. If he will respond, what he will see is the promise of the Messiah. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you, right? So if they respond to general revelation, it will lead them eventually to special revelation. And then when they get the special revelation, it will be the word of God. And whether that word of God is talked to them through a vision or a dream like they do in Muslim countries, whether that's from a missionary, whether that's from a Bible they find, whether that's however God wants to get that special revelation to that individual, then that leads them to the Messiah. But they have to stay along that path. Any time on that path, they decide, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not as far as I go then they won't be given that special revelation. And they will be stuck in general revelation. So what the Apostle Paul will do in Romans is he'll show you where they deviate. He'll say, what does he say about when they don't worship the Creator? What do they start doing? They start worshiping the creation. So in general revelation, what Paul is saying is they have a chance to worship and see that there's a Creator. And if they do that, then it will lead them to special revelation. If they don't, they go into idolatry immediately. And they stay stuck there until they're willing to get out of that. So it shows you how the trail just splits immediately off of creation. Okay. Therefore, what is the point that I'm trying to make? All I'm trying to make is the point. The scriptures are telling you and I that's the word of God that draws people, a special revelation that draws people to Jesus and explains who Jesus is but they have to respond to general revelation. Okay, so the Jews don't need general revelation. They already have it. So he starts them off with special revelation. That's why he quotes Isaiah 54. The scriptures are not advocating at all that God just picks people and draws them to the Messiah based on him electing them. It is totally up to them whether or not they're going to respond 
to general revelation and then special revelation. Because by the way, you can get a, you can respond to general revelation and, and hear about the Messiah, special revelation, just like the Pharisees, and still not believe. So let me ask you this question. Why is it in that text that the Pharisees, religious leaders, won't come to him? We know they're rejecting the Messiah, right? But they're rejecting something else before they reject the Messiah. Why is it they can't come? What are they rejecting? The special revelation. If you reject the Bible, then you're definitely not going to believe Jesus. You can't have the cart before the horse, if that makes sense. Okay, any questions? I know that's a lot. Richard. Right. So think about this, Richard. Because they don't believe the Old Testament, it's the same as it back then. The modern day, uh, oh, I can't remember their names. They, they go to their schools. It's not seminaries. Oh, that escapes my mind. They send their, those kids to like Jewish, uh, seminaries. I, I, that's the wrong word, but, um, what is that school? Ah, you know what I'm talking about. It's their form of seminary. Okay, they go there, but they never study Isaiah 53. They never look at Psalm 22. They don't study the scriptures. What do the Jews study when they go to their seminary? The, the, not the Torah. The Torah is the law. They study the Talmud, which is made up of the oral law and the written commentary codified into the Talmud. Basically, they're reading commentaries from rabbis on the Bible, but they never read the Bible. I think you can do the math. If you're not studying the Bible and you don't know what it says, how can you see Jesus? You can't. So why is Israel partially blinded right now? Is it because some God, God put some mystical thing on their eyes and they can't see? Why are they partially blinded? Because they're partially refusing to accept the Scriptures as it says. They will not come to faith because they don't accept their own Bible. Fonzo. Yes. Because, man, if you read Isaiah 53, you cannot get away from, that's a singular suffering servant, and that's referring to Messiah. And to this day, so what we call this is the cult of the rabbis. They have created a cult of Judaism that doesn't read Scripture. So, you know, the funny thing is, I, I would get articles from uh, Israel My Glory. You guys ever get that magazine from Israel My Glory? They used to have a back section with Zvi. You ever see Zvi's back section? He, he, he was Menelkalisher's dad, and he's passed away since then. But anyway, Zvi would go into, you know, the, in the temple precincts and all this place where they, all the, the rabbis were and all these, these rabbi students were, and he would twist them into theological pretzel. But one of the major things he would always show them, they say, well, you just don't pay attention uh, you know, to our fathers and, and tradition. And he goes, you don't pay attention to the scriptures. And he would like have a Bible and says, here's your own scriptures, read this. And he, they would read Isaiah 53. And they would say, that's not in our Bible. He goes, it's your Bible. It's in Hebrew. It's, it's your prophet. And he goes, we have never seen that before. We're going to have to talk to our rabbi about this. We have never seen that. Is this a fake Bible? They didn't think it was in their Bible. When they read it, what is this? It's Isaiah 53, and they're just floored. Because it's describing Jesus. 
But what is the point? They're seminary students going to be a rabbi and they have never read Isaiah 53. What does that tell you? Well, yeah, they're not reading it. That's my point. Yeah, that's their problem. It's the same issue they had in that day. The reason they couldn't come to Jesus is because they didn't believe their own Bible. It's the same problem. Yeah, Isaiah 53, I've seen it. It's on display there in front of their very eyes and they don't see it. It's in Hebrew. It's amazing, isn't it? No, they were, it's a forbidden name. Yes. And so today, if you mention that name in rabbinic circles, they'll say, don't mention that name. Don't mention his name. That's the name. We don't mention that. I mean, they will hammer you. It's crazy. And it goes back to Richard, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them through the Scriptures. They don't accept me because they don't accept their own word. Their own word. Hey, possibly, because the religious leaders eventually get this. They accept the Scriptures for what it says, and they call out to Jesus. So they eventually do. That's why you, you eventually will see Israel's national salvation in the tribulation. But, but think about this. They have to be forced into the tribulation, do a deal with the devil, in order to be broken down so much with their pride and saying, you're going to read the Scriptures again? We're going to get back and read the Scriptures again, huh? After this Antichrist guy and all this other, you're going to get back? Yeah. After the two witnesses? Yeah. And then when they do, salvation. Probably. I would imagine that the 144,000 are going to use Isaiah 53. I have a pretty good hunch. And Psalm 22. Yeah. They're all Jewish. Yeah. And, you know, to, to Bobby's point, the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, like Gentiles read that and they're like, okay. They skip it usually in their devotional time. But when the Jews see that, Oh, my Lanta. They're like, wait a second. Our genealogies were destroyed in 70 AD, and we have a genealogy preserved, a Jewish line, and it's linked to this Jesus of Nazareth. And that blows them away. They had no idea that was in there. And so you're right. When they start reading that, if you can get them to read that, whoa, it lights them up, man. It's amazing, yeah. Well, they were they were putting together a commentary on what they should do without basically. Well, it's more than just not having a temple. That was part of it, because what are you going to do with sacrifices when you don't have a temple? How are we going to practice Judaism without a temple? Because Judaism is foundational to a temple. You have to have a temple to practice Judaism. Well, yeah, of course, but it was commentary, commentary, commentary. So you would get so far away from the scriptures because you're reading a commentary that's based on 15 other rabbis commentating on one other guy. And so you got one guy commentating on that guy, then another guy commentating on that guy, then another guy commentating on that guy, and you just keep going with this infinite regression of rabbis commenting. Before you know it, you don't know where you're at. You just don't. And so then at that point, you're basically, those who are experts in the law were not experts in the law of Moses. They were experts in the, the oral law. The traditions, the Mishnah. Yeah, that was codified in the Talmud. So that's, it just built, it just created a cult. Basically, it's like looking at the Mormons who have an alternative authority. 
Okay? The Mormons have other books that they consider authoritative. Well, so does Judaism, and it's called the Talmud. It's a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. That's it! The yeshivas. You got it. It's the yeshivas. Thank you. Thank you, David. Uh, yeah, so they're, they're Jewish, their seminaries where they train the rabbis are yeshivas. Uh, those are the schools where they're trained. So yeah, he would go, Zvi would go to these yeshiva students and he would mess them all up, man. It, it, it was great to read about and watch that. You won't be able to go to the root of the scripture because you won't get to the scripture. You just never, you never will get to it. So basically what Satan has done to the Jews is he's intentionally blinded them to the word because they have built so many layers away from it. We call this the fence around the Torah. Okay? The, the fences they have built are layers and layers, and it keeps... The original intent, Richard, was to prevent the Jews from violating Torah. Okay? So what they did is they... Here's the Torah, the 613 laws... We don't want to violate those, so what we're going to do is build a fence around them so we don't even get close to the edge. But then this fence became what was obeyed, and then someone else built another fence, and then they built another fence, and the circle kept getting wider and wider. And then they even said, when Messiah gets here, he'll show us to build another fence. They would do what a classic lawyer would do today, you find loopholes. And what Jesus did when he came there, he exposed their loopholes, and expose their ridiculousness with what they've created. And because that's not what the intention was. And, and so it, it just went beyond, beyond crazy. Um, so that's what blinds the Jews today. That's what blinds the Jews is other authorities, which is the rabbis, right? It's the cult of the rabbi. Yeah. And, and they preserved it. And so there was always the remnant that preserved it, got it out, and did what the Lord wanted. That's why it's still with us today. Well, that, and what Paul would say is because of that Jewish remnant that did that for us, we owe them monetarily in Romans fifteen twenty seven for producing that for us. We are the benefactors of them passing that on. Well, we were talking about the remnant, the believing elements of Israel, not the unbelieving element. We all believe. So what you're supposed to do practically is you are supposed to practically find Jewish believers in whom you can give money to. That's how practical it gets. So you give to Jewish organizations like Chosen People Ministry, uh, Cyril Gordon and other guys who are doing the work, because you owe them because of the heritage that they have. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.